0: In to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. My name is Sean Collins and I'm the host of Energy Voices. Over the next hour, we're going to explore a number of different topics and discussions in the world of energy. We're going to hear from one of the entrepreneurs I admire most in the field of clean tech entrepreneurship, Joey Hunter. We're going to have a University of Calgary professor explore some really interesting topics around climate change. And we're going to take our first field trip. Jenny and Julia from the student energy staff will be going to Fort McMurray to tour the oil sands. We're also going to leave you with some summertime energy hacks that will provide you with an opportunity to reduce your personal energy consumption in summer in some really fun and innovative ways. We're also pleased to have another essay from Julian Mathonier, one of our key student volunteers based in Europe. Next up on Energy Voices, we're doing an interview with Joey Hundert, who's one of the most inspirational energy entrepreneurs I've come across in my travels. Joey has worked on a variety of different activities focused on how we harness the power of new, clean, and green technologies to evolve our current system. So please join me in welcoming Joey Hundert to the show. Hey there. So, Joey, first off, can you give us a, a quick elevator pitch on, on who you are and what you're working on uh, and, and some of the technologies that you've been a part of uh, and, and seek to develop?
1: Sounds good. Uh, My name is Joey Hunter. I am, a, I suppose, what you would call a social entrepreneur, hailing from Edmonton, Alberta. I like to launch ventures that have a pretty clear social impact baked right into the product or service. And uh, at present, one of the manifestations of that is I've launched the world's first green carnival, called Sustainaval, and we launched it in 2011. And all of our rides run on waste vegetable oil, wind, and solar power. And we use the carnival as a way to give everyday people an overwhelming sense of how awesome sustainability is and how real and tangible. Sustainable technologies are. And so we've also used the carnival as a platform to, uh, let's say, bring technologies through their research and development and then spin them out into the world. And those are technologies in the areas of energy, agriculture, water, uh, housing, and some other areas.
0: And one of the ventures that you've recently spun up is called Green Grease and seems to be a really interesting take on uh, applying some sort of marketing and uh, actual sort of visible PR to the world of energy, which is something that I feel is is often missing. So can you give us a background and an overview of why you decided to start Green Grease and, and what the business model there is? Sounds
1: good. So Green Grease is a new program within Sustainable that once it grows to a certain size, we will also likely spin that out. The Green Grease is a new waste vegetable oil upcycling program for the city of Edmonton and expanding out into other regions of Alberta. Now, for the past few years, we have had arrangements with restaurants to take their waste vegetable oil during the times of our carnival such that we can turn it into biodiesel, and power up our our rides on it. However, we're wanting to have more of an ongoing relationship with restaurants and this cool energy product, Um, and we have found a number of ongoing uses for the product. So the Green Grease Program works as a collection service. So we have fabricated our own waste vegetable oil collection bins we have trucks, we have pumps, we have staff, and we reach out to restaurants, and we let them know that at present, their waste vegetable oil is being fed to cattle, and we want to feed it to our Ferris wheel, and they seem to like that idea, and we go a little further into it and are able to offer a really tailored level of service that goes above and beyond what they're used to, and then it doesn't cost anything, so they don't actually pay us anything to come and get that oil. So once we have it in our possession, we convert it into biodiesel, and we power up the carnival. And we also have a wood recycling operation that uh, we turn construction waste and used pallets into mulches and compost, which is also another piece of sustainable. And it's a very power-hungry process. So now we run that process on the waste vegetable oil that we're collecting from restaurants. And as far as PR goes, it's a very public campaign. So we we let restaurants know that we're going to tell this story that they're a part of, that they have chosen to work with a small and unconventional service provider versus an established player in the market, which is risky. But by doing so, they're, they're actually committing to the environment and sustainability in some way. And we want to tell the story about that. So they get a big badge that goes up on the door or the front window of the restaurant that shows that they're a part of the program. We issue a yearly publication on the coolest, greenest restaurants in Edmonton. And we're finding all sorts of cool ways to get the message out that these are the players that are concerned about the environment doing something about it. Um, and we also make people aware of this conversion process of taking waste vegetable oil and upcycling it into biodiesel to power cool things. And as such, we have a mobile biodiesel process that we take to the biggest festivals in the city, and we convert waste vegetable oil from the concessions right on site and involve people in the production of energy. And we find that this gives people more literacy in energy. It shows them what's possible with pretty simple chemistry and just opens their mind a bit. But we've been engaging with thousands and thousands of people per year through an attraction like this. And that's really... There's a number of ways we're reaching out to the public through this program, and we find that that educational component is really what uh, the impact that we like to create.
0: Mm-hmm. And. One of the things that I find so inspiring and admirable about what you've been able to do, Joey, is that you've always started with fun. You you start with the platform of Sustainable and the idea that we can all get behind having fun and doing it in an eco-friendly way and that that platform has led to so many other things. So the, the next question I wanted to ask you was around any sort of lessons you've learned in marketing because I feel like in the energy industry, it's often driven by a lot of the engineers and the scientists that are working 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 on new technologies and they don't necessarily understand human behavior and human psychology. And so I wanted to pick your brain on the role or the impact you feel that your personality and your approach to this system has been able to have on the success of Sustainable and and the various technologies.
1: Certainly, you know, I am quite aware of when people learn best and people learn best when they're having fun and when they feel passionate about something that's part of the magic of sustainable is that everybody knows what to do at a carnival. They came to have fun. And when they find out there's this whole other dimension of, of world saving going on, they get really excited. So already the table is set for, for marketing and for, for education, given that the milieu is right. This is now about fun. I think that that shouldn't be lost. And I agree with you. Like that, that is a lot of the power of, of what we do. And, it's important to communicate technical subject matter in very tangible ways. It is just all too easy to assume that somebody has any subject matter expertise at all. They may not have heard any of the terms that we're using. What is a gigajoule? What's a megawatt? What's a, what's a ton of CO2? Like, I find that those of us in the industry are, are really bad at remembering that everybody starts at zero. And so... Part of what we've been able to do at the carnival is is bring this terminology into relevance. For example, if we want to show somebody their electrical consumption on a yearly basis, we'll show them a pile of coal. This is it right here. This pile of coal is what you consume every year in your energy consumption. Or we'll show them barrels of oil, like actual barrels. This is the physical space, this is the area of the energy that you consume in your car. And we'll also create equivalency. We'll put people on bicycles and have them make enough energy to run a blender to make a smoothie for themselves um, or to light up a light bulb. And lighting up a 100-watt light bulb is really hard. And then we'll show them that one light bulb, and then we'll show them a pile of light bulbs um, and and create equivalencies where think about how much energy it took for you to power that light bulb. Well, here's how many light bulbs there are in an office tower. So we're just trying to bring energy literacy up with really common symbols and attributes. And I think that that is just critical because the more technical we try to go, and, and a lot of people in the industry want to make their point technically because they feel that that's the wild card. Well, we're good now because we've advanced so much that technical mumbo jumbo, etc., and nobody understands it, nor do they care. So everything in any, any area needs to be brought within common terms, everyday terms, and people have to have a reason to care. And reasons to care come out of storytelling. There has to be a story. There has to be a plot. There have to be characters. Like, there's all these common elements to use that I think are just totally lost by the energy industry. Every single ad campaign that I see come out from the usual suspects, which kind of breaks my heart because I know a lot of the technical innovation happening in these companies, and it is mind-blowing. But they try to get very technical on people in their ads, and it goes right under or over people's head, or people don't even have a reason to care. And then these companies end up looking out of touch once again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it'd be, it would serve a lot to bring it back into storytelling and common common reference points. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and I think one thing you, we always realize is that it's really hard for people to get passionate about abstract facts. And mm-hmm. so much of the, the conversation and energy is around, well, we need to get the facts out and we need to make sure people understand the facts. And I think we can see from repeated examples in every industry in the world that facts often don't move the equation. It's, it's people getting emotionally invested and inspired that really matters. And, and I think that you're doing such an amazing job of actually making and creating moments where people can become inspired um, Thank you. And so, I just want the, the last question I had for you today, Joey, was just to, to to ask you about what the future of Sustainaval looks like for if you could maybe fill in the sentence of uh, in ten years, Joey Hundert will be where?
1: In ten years, Sustainaval will have become Cirque du Soleil of sustainability. That is our goal. We've reached a few million people. Uh, on site, by this point, we want to reach 100 million people. Yeah. By that time, we want to become a household name in sustainability and become sort of the Disney of, our, of a new age. So we're going to fan out our operations as quickly as we can and serve as many cities and jurisdictions as we can, crossing the border into the states. And eventually, we want to be at the state fair level. We want We want to throw the state fair in a number of states. We want to throw gargantuan multi-million attendee extravaganza and partner with all levels of government, corporate, nonprofit NGO, charitable sectors um, so we're just we're trying to perfect the formula in our own backyard in our own laboratory and getting great results and trying to be conscious about how to scale up to that level, which is a tall order and pretty grandiose but it also gets us up in the morning. So, that's, that's really our goal is to become a very common name, become a trusted educator, to have also pervaded the school systems as it relates to educating on sustainability. Um, we're working with a number of different school boards to develop curriculum and to perfect delivery methods and to incorporate carnival rides and education on physics and biology and all that other cool stuff. So, that's really it, is to become a very trusted big brand for call it edutainment.
0: I absolutely love the the tagline of the Cirque du Soleil of sustainability. And for any of our listeners that want to participate in Sustainable personally uh, or engage with you further, where what resources can you direct them towards or, or what events do you have coming up that people can uh, sort of tangibly participate in?
1: Yeah, so we've got a big, big carnival event coming up. Uh, for the labor day weekend in this coming this coming August September in Fort McMurray we run a 4 day really large event and usually about a quarter of the city turns out it's a ruckus good time and we typically have a team of many many volunteers and provide for accommodation folks can find us at sustainaval.com uh, which is like the word sustainable and carnival smushed together sus dot com, And also our Twitter handle is just at Sustainable. Hit us up with a tweet. Send an email to hello at Sustainable.com. Just get in touch. Facebook, Twitter, our website, whatever. And let us know you want to come out.
0: Perfect. And we'll make sure in our blog and after this radio show to make all those links available so that people can participate if they're interested. Excellent. So that's all the questions I have for you today. And uh, I think I speak on behalf of myself and our whole student network when I just wanna encourage you to keep killing it, Joey. I think the, the work that you've been doing uh, is really inspiring to myself personally and to I think will be really inspiring to a lot of the the youth in our network. So thank you for joining us and, and we'd love to have you back in future to give us some updates on, on how you're tracking towards that progress of being the household name for sustainability.
1: I love it, Sean. Thanks for everything.
0: Cheers, take care. Welcome back to Energy Voices on CGSW 90.9 FM. Coming up is Mishka Lysak, a University of Calgary professor discussing climate change.
2: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a segment on energy and climate. My name is Kaylee Taylor, and I'm the Executive Director of Student Energy, and I'm in the studio with Dr. Mishka Lysak. Hi, Dr. Mishka.
3: Hi, how are you? Good, how are you today? Good, thanks.
2: So as everyone knows, Student Energy likes to approach energy challenges from a systems perspective, and that means that we like to look at the complexity in the conditions around systems and why they are the way that they are. Just like the economy, education, and technology, energy systems will transform as we learn more about their impacts and opportunities. So today, we're going to be talking to Mishka a little bit about some of the trends that we're seeing globally that indicate that an energy transition may be imminent. So Mishka, you come from energy from a a bit of a different and interesting lens. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in the environmental movement?
3: Well, it goes back, actually, back to when I was a teenager and my interest in Greenpeace. And at that point, there was the whole thing around protecting the whales. And I had whale posters in my bedroom, and everything as a teenager. Um, And that continued, but it wasn't certainly a strong passion until more recently when I was um, reading um, a book called... uh, The Weathermakers by Tim Flannery who's an Australian scientist and I was really impacted by reading that book and especially concerned about all the impacts on not only humans but also other species on the planet and particularly in the Arctic and I thought I've got to do something, I, I need to get involved and at that point I was coming here to the university to take on a new position and decided that what I would try and do is bring my position which is in social work together with a strong environmental awareness and to be involved in in solving some of those problems.
2: And so where do you kind of see those overlaps between the social work and the environmental side?
3: Social work has always had a strong tradition of social justice, advocacy, involvement in the community, public education. And in fact, here at uh, University of Calgary, we even have an international stream so that it's, it's very cosmopolitan. Um, but it, it hasn't had much of an interest in environmental issues until recently. And especially because students, I think, now are quite interested in it. Many of them are struggling with maybe with health concerns or um, are aware of climate change. And so because of that, there are a lot of people, myself included, who are now bringing those uh, two areas together into, I think, what's a pretty exciting combination.
2: Interesting. It's always great to see this overlap in many domains. Everything truly is interrelated. So for anyone who's been tackling issues of climate change over the last decade, it's fair to say that it's been a bit of a frustrating time. The COP summit in Copenhagen was a bust. Denial has been running rampant, and particularly in politics and in the US. And there's been a general lack of leadership in moving towards real action. But recently, it seems like there's been a few glimmers of hope and that people may be ready for action. Can you tell me a little bit about any of the changes that you've been seeing and any potential opportunities?
3: There, there are several, I think. One is is my sense is that more and more people are aware of climate change. And depending on your age um, and sometimes where you're located as well, I think there's more buy-in that, yes, we have a problem, it's human caused, and that we're actually in a pretty serious situation. I think a lot of people do get that. Um, And I think that's hopeful and that's been certainly helped along by the scientists in terms of, you know, they've done an extraordinary job in dealing with these really difficult problems in chemistry and physics and have certainly shown us what we need to do and the reasons why. So that's one piece that's really important is the whole environmental side. I think there's another side, which is that we have some alternatives. I mean, it's not just a matter of being against something. We can also be for something else. And the for something else is not just some vague thing of sustainability. But we have a lot of countries and regions that are already taking leadership in terms of changing their economy and especially changing their energy systems so that they're based on renewable energy rather than on uh, carbon-intensive fossil fuels. Germany, Denmark are certainly the ones that come to mind. But there are a lot of countries doing great work and providing, I think, both leadership, the technology as well, and, um, and in, in putting those pieces together, I think offer some real sense of hope. And then the third piece, and we can come back to each of these, but the mm-hmm. third piece I think is there's also growing concern in the investment community about... Um, About uh, climate change in particular, but also the possibility of stranded assets. So those three things are kind of coming together, which wasn't the case a couple of years ago. And I think more and more people are kind of feeling, ah, maybe there's an opening here. Mm -hmm. There's some possibilities. Let's go for it.
2: We're seeing a convergence. So let's go back to the first one. So you mentioned that people are kind of starting to develop a consciousness almost about the impact that we're having on the planet um, I think you had mentioned that there was a Pemina Institute study that came out recently. Can you tell me a little bit about how we're seeing that consciousness develop maybe in data and, and other studies around the world or in Alberta here?
3: Here in Alberta, the study revealed that certainly a good strong majority of people, I can't remember the exact percentage, I think it was 74%, uh, but certainly three quarters of the Albertan populations want, want the government to take strong action on climate change. In some ways, that maybe doesn't fit with some of the images that we may have of ourselves. But this polling data is, I mean, no reason to believe that it's uh, untrue. So I think it reveals that there has been some kind of shift. And because of that, I think there, there is a possibility that political leadership in Alberta could take their cue from that and begin to act on not only climate change, but also start to take some steps like in terms of phasing out coal, starting to be, get serious about renewable energy, and also certainly monitoring some of the pollution effects of the oil sands as well.
2: Interesting. And you also mentioned just briefly around, it kind of depends on what age you are. Do you think there's a generational uh, component to this consciousness that... Is it, we're seeing publicly?
3: I think there's not only an age gap, but I think there's also a gender gap, quite honestly. I think uh, men are less, sometimes less likely to believe in climate change, particularly if they're in the older age group. I think once you get down into the middle and young adults uh, kind of levels, I don't think it probably makes that much difference. But my sense is that when I talk to students, they're first confused about why we're talking about environmental issues in social work. (laughs) But I think very quickly they realize, yes, these are things I'm concerned about. And it's great that we can actually talk about it in a social work class. So I think actually young people and young adults are much more aware than sometimes their their parents are.
2: Yeah, we, we certainly see that with student energy. So now on that second one around the, the fact that there are options, it, we, we don't have to just be uh, tied into a, a certain um, type of infrastructure. Can you tell me a little bit about those options um, and, and some of the progress that they've made? Because I think in the past, there's been a lot of uh, naysayers that renewables are too expensive. There's big intermittency issues, those types of things. Can you give a brief overview of some of the the changes we're seeing there?
3: Well, I can look. I'll tell you about one country which I actually visited last year, which was Germany. I spent about two weeks there and actually went to regions that are already having um, their electricity generated by 100% renewable power. Generally, that means solar, a lot of wind, fair amount of biomass, occasionally some, some a bit of hydro. But they're doing extraordinary things like, for example, last Mother's Day, so only a couple weeks ago, um, and granted, it was a Sunday and Mother's Day, so maybe energy use was, was down somewhat. But 74% of electricity needs were met by solar alone. And that's pretty astonishing, and that's not an isolated event. There have been these peaks for quite some time, and uh, I think that shows that that there are possibilities of moving forward on in this kind of direction. The other, I think, exciting thing about Germany is they actually have a plan of regions' municipalities becoming not only 100% renewable in their electricity, they're also working, secondly, on heating and cooling and a little bit further down the road on uh, transportation as well, like looking at electrifying their transportation. Already... There are 9 million Germans who live in areas in Germany that have 100% renewable energy. It's been certified as such. There's a total of over 21 million Germans who live in areas that already have it, or they have an action plan. They've kind of consulted with the community, and uh, their, their plan has been accepted. as So they're what's called a starter region. So think about that just for a moment over 21 million, that would be certainly well over half of the Canadian population. And I think that just speaks to how things are changing and they're changing quickly. The prices are coming down in renewables. They're becoming much more competitive uh, with uh, fossil fuels. And um, because of the competition with China, flooding the market with solar panels, Germany kind of retooling itself to do some of the more other technical aspects, I think there's some great opportunities that that, that some ways we could be plugging into as Canadians.
2: Interesting, and, and is the difference just will? What makes Germany different from other places?
3: Uh, I think it's a combination of political leadership, which is certainly there is political leadership more in Germany than I would say is, is here. I, I would be hard-pressed to point to, say, a premier or some, a federal leader who is a really clear, strong, unequivocal leader in this area, although some are obviously much stronger in this this area than others. So, so I think it's political leadership. Secondly, I think it's culture in the sense that, that Germany is they want to make changes because they don't want to to have their nukes any longer, especially after Fukushima. Um, they talked about how they don't trust Putin, so they're not crazy about the natural gas piece. And they don't feel very good about coal. Well, that kind of you know, eliminates most of your options. So they're quite committed to doing that. Now, they also, though, it must be said, face some serious challenges if they have to redo their grid. Uh, and work on on that kind of those kinds of issues, but they're certainly determined to do it, and I think they're providing great leadership
2: interesting and we always say at student energy there's there's no free lunch every type of energy has cost benefits and trade-offs that we have to think about. Now the third element that you mentioned that's that's a you know opportunity is some of the shifts we're seeing in investment and and how people are spending money and investing capital. And and obviously that speaks volumes. So what are some of those trends and, and specific things we're seeing in the investment community?
3: Well, I would point to two key events, and both of them are in 2012, which also happened to be a remarkably hot year, especially in the United States, where there was drought, Uh, Corn even had trouble germinating, like there was food production problems. So two things happened. One was that an investment group in the UK called the Carbon Trackers Initiative, they put out a report that detailed three things, that this is, we have to stay under two degrees, average temperature rise, which is pretty normal. Most people in the G8 certainly talked about that. Uh, The second piece was there are 565 gigatons of carbon in our carbon budget left in order for us to stay under that red line. But the really interesting um, piece of information was they actually went through all these records and compiled... How many gigatons of carbon are in the existing reserves? So we're not talking about new stuff. We're not talking about stuff in the Arctic or anything like that. But in existing reserves that they are reporting to the government. And it's almost five times as much as twenty-seven ninety-five. dollars That means certainly two-thirds, if not 80% of all that carbon, coal, oil, and gas has to stay in the ground if we're going to have a planet that's livable. And what that means is the value of those companies is now in serious doubt. And that could have all kinds of ripple effects in the investment community. And so what's happening is those, all those, um, the side of investment community that does the long-term invests sort of pension funds and so on, they're now starting to ask questions about um, what is the carbon risk of all these investments and last summer July 8th actually Storebrand, which has 76 billion dollars in assets and is, uh, manages funds in, in Norway and Sweden um, they got rid of 19 companies that they consider to be high risk 13 coal companies And I think coal is really on the chopping block for over the next decade and six oil companies, some of which were oil sands companies. So that's really significant. We're talking about investors for financial reasons starting to shift away and not just divest or look at moving their assets out of that, but putting them into other things like renewable energy. I think that's a game changer, because I think the other things will continue to grow, environmental concerns, obviously, and health concerns. And uh, though I think there is going to be the emergence of some political leadership. But I think the financial piece is going to be crucial. And the fact that clean energy is starting to become more competitive with fossil fuel companies, I think is important, too.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, at Student Energy, we've been watching that div- divestment campaign really ca- closely because it's been driven largely by students in, in North America, at least, and and uh, we've been looking at universities and where they're investing their dollars, and there's been a lot of movement on that front. So just to wrap up here, now that we're seeing these opportunities, what needs to be happening in addition to really make the system tip or to, or to make a transition truly happen?
3: A couple things. I think one of them is that we're now at a time where it there needs to really be a mass movement. And everyone its all hands on deck. Everyone needs to be engaged, which doesn't mean that all of us become full time advocates like climate justice activists or something like that. But it does mean that we we each need to think individually about how is what we are doing connected with the climate justice or and healing and dealing with climate change. Um, there's no more room for freeloading or sort of saying, oh, somebody else, like this group is handling the file, but I'll just continue doing my own stuff. So I think all of us need to become engaged. That's not only a responsibility, it's actually an opportunity because we get to have the chance not only to do things, but also redesign them in a way that makes more sense anyway. So I think it's a wonderful opportunity to to do that. I think we need to get, secondly, very involved with um, contacting our political leaders And I think the third piece is around um, looking at our investments and starting to see, are there some options for us to both divest, but also reinvest in things that we want to support, where the values of those uh, investments jive with our own values. So I think those would be the three big things that we need to start to consider.
2: Great. Thank you so much for ending on a note around action and how we can all take action. Uh, I'd like to thank you for coming in the studio and talking to us today. And as always, we will be posting resources that were mentioned in this interview on our blog after the show. Thank you.
3: Thank you.
0: Welcome back to Energy Voices on CGSW 90.9 FM. For Student Energy's next segment, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to take a field trip. Personally, I grew up in Fort McMurray, the heart of Canada's oil sands industry and one of the largest global deposits of fossil fuels in the world. It's something that is often discussed in Canada, in North America, and globally because of both the economic and the environmental impacts of such a large-scale industrial activity. One of the things that I always said in growing up in Fort McMurray and having the conversation about Fort Mac and the oil sands over and over in my lifetime is that it's something that everyone who's concerned about the oil sands issue or has not stake in the oil sands issue should have a first hand account of what it is actually like. It's really easy to have conjecture and to make assumptions when you've never actually seen a resource or seen the actual physical locations in person. And so what we wanted to do with this segment was to take a field trip and to send Jenny Matchett and Julia Kabuma, two student energy staff members who had never visited the oil sands, to tour what they were like. Fasten your seatbelts because Jenny and Julia are about to take you on a tour of the Fort McMurray oil sands.
4: So, Student Energy is about to take off on the Suncor jet up to Fort McMurray for the day. It is 5.33 a.m., bright and early. Of course it's not bright. (laughs) The opposite of bright. Julia, how are you feeling about this tour? Oh, I am so excited, Jenny. So exciting! I can hear the plane. It's just warming up. It just fueled up. So I think they're just checking it before... Before, we, before they load the passengers, I can see the pilots in the cockpit doing their initial check-ins, I guess.
3: What she means to say is
4: the jet is purring. <laughs>
0: After one-hour flight, Jenny and Julia touched down in Fort McMurray at 7 a.m. They immediately headed to Suncor's Millennium Extraction Mine, which is located about 30 kilometers from the airport. They arrived in time for the 8 a.m. shift change, which meant that they were able to witness a flood of buses leaving the site. One of the stats that we were quoted when my family first moved to Fort McMurray in 1997 was that diversified transportation had more buses than the entire city of Edmonton public transit system combined, which is a staggering testament to the fact of the sheer infrastructure required to move the number of human beings required to service and operate the oil sands plants. The first item on the agenda is for Kaylin from Suncor to describe the heavy haul trucks that transport the oil sands product.
3: All right. So, just
4: tell us where we are right now, and talk to me about that aggressively huge piece of equipment. So, we're currently in the um, what we call the truck shop, um, the mine equipment maintenance shop. So, this is where all the heavy hauler maintenance is done on site. The truck that you're looking at right now is a Komatsu um, heavy hauler, and the Komatsus are diesel electric, so they have an electric motor that helps run the wheels, kind of like a locomotive. And this one is. The one that we're looking at right now would carry about 300 to 350 tons of um, oil sands or product. Um, each one is takes about takes six tires. Um, they don't come with tires; we add those on after. And the cost range is about um, for now. This is with Komatsu's and the Caterpillars range from 4.2 to 6.5 million without tires.
0: It's interesting to hear Kaylin repeatedly reference the tire aspects of these massive pieces of machinery. I had the fortune of working one summer for Thompson Brothers Construction, which was a road builder in Fort McMurray, and this was right during the 2004 and 2005 global shortage of tires. It was fascinating to me that these $5 million pieces of machinery would often be sitting on blocks in the yard because they would simply have run out of tires. If you were an operator that was known for blowing tires, you were quite likely to get fired on the spot if you had had one too many infractions where you had unnecessarily blown a tire. Before we dive in, we ask for a quick overview of the Athabasca region and the different types of technologies that are used to extract the oil sands.
4: So in the Athabasca resource, which is the deposit that we're in right now, about 80% is recoverable by in situ, and about 20% is recoverable by mining, and that's the actual resource. When you look at the surface of that, um, it would be it's less than 3% of the surface would actually be disturbed by mining operations, so you actually get more um, with mining, you can get more of the resource, and then in situ is a larger area because everything is much deeper.
0: Next up, Kaylin takes the girls through the extraction and upgrading process required in oil sands operations.
4: Okay, so today we visited extraction, and in extraction we um, got to see the basically how we remove the bitumen from the ta- from the sand. So when to do that, we use the hot water extraction process. So we add the hot water to. The oil sands. It mixes together and basically allows the bitumen to release from the sand. The bitumen then goes to eventually to upgrading and the sand itself would be going into the tailings process. So the tailings process that we use now is we send that tailings, which is a mixture of sand, clays and silts, um, residual bitumen, about three to five percent of what was originally there, and the water would go to a sand placement area. The sand will fall and then the water is collected and sent to an existing tailings pond um, where it will then be sent through the tailings reduction operations process. Um, with that process, we remove a layer that's called mature fine tails, which is basically the clays holding onto the water. We mix it with a polymer flocculant, and that polymer allows the clay structure to go back to normal and release the water out. Water issues
0: represent one of the most contentious topics in the oil sands. The usage of water from both fresh and saline sources is something that is heavily criticized. The other challenge is that the tailings ponds are open to the elements and have residual bitumen in them. I remember one of my welcome to site moments was when I was touring around and saw the massive water cannons that were designed to keep waterfowl off of the tailings ponds. While 99.9% effective, these are not perfectly effective tools, and there have been wildlife losses from animals that have been trapped in the tailings ponds and the bitumen residue. After extraction, the girls move on to learning about the upgrading process of the oil sands operations.
4: Um, so here at the upgrader, what we do is, if you think of upgrading, think of it as you're remo- removing the you're removing the products. Um, you're adding heat and pressure to remove them from each other, so you get the products that you want. The process we use at Suncor is called delayed coking. So basically what we're doing is removing the carbon um, to get the products that we want. So what we um, do is we'll put it through um, a vacuum pressure unit where we get the lighter byproducts, um, the lighter products off of it, the more pure hydrocarbons, then it goes to a fractionator or pardon me, sorry, to a furnace and then that's where we put it under pressure conditions. so you just start to get the molecules ready to break apart and then goes into the coker drum where it boils so rapidly that it will thermally crack and you'll have the separation of petroleum coke or the carbon and your vapors. Your vapors then go over to a fractionator and they rise, cool and liquefy and that's where you get your three components of crude oil. So you'll get kerosene, gas oil and naphtha. the coker drums, as they're filled, they'll empty out by um, using a high-pressure water drill. And then the petroleum coke that's left over, that carbon, we primarily stockpile and we will sell some and we will burn some for
0: energy. In the afternoon, Jenny and Julia switched gears and headed out to Suncor's in situ operations at Mackay River.
4: So right now we're headed to Mackay River, which is one of our in-situ operations. And we're going to go around the site and do just a driving tour to see what the well pads look like, where the pipes go into the ground, and talk about the plant and the process and how we um, get the end result, which is a bitumen.
0: After seeing the massive trucks and machinery required in mining, the girls were blown away at how simple the in-situ operations looked.
5: My name is Kelly Stevens, and I'm in Corporate Communications at Suncor. So today, after we visited the main base plant and mine site for Suncor, we went to the Mackay River in situ plant. Uh, the type of facility that Mackay River is, is sagd, or Steam Assisted Gravity Drainage. You often hear in situ compared to mining, because they're very different ways of getting oil sands out of the ground. In in situ, we pump steam down under the ground into a well, and it heats up the oil underneath the ground which melts off the sound kind of drips into another well and gets pumped up to the top and then it all goes into a plant where the oil and the water get separated the water gets used to make more steam and the process just kind of repeats itself over and over in a a cycle. The bitumen comes out of the Mackay River plant and either goes to market for sales or it can go to the upgrader that we just visited at the base plant for further upgrading so if I compare the pieces or the types of oil sands there's mining where you have a really obvious surface disturbance and tailings ponds and concerns related to those aspects of development within situ you don't get any of that surface disturbance um, there's a lot less visible you can leave the trees where they are but we use a lot more energy and water to create the steam. So they both have their pros and cons.
0: In the grand scheme of the energy industry, in situ technology is relatively new. Here, Kelly also describes to us some of the future-oriented technologies that they're looking at using in oil sands extraction.
5: In situ has really only existed for the last little over a decade. Mackay River, where we visited today, is the first operating plant and Firebag, Suncor's other and bigger in-situ facility, was the second. So this is still very much in the early stages of development and we're constantly looking at new ways to do in-situ. So if you think of in-situ meaning in place, it means we're developing the bitumen in place underground where it's found, Um, there's other ways to extract it. So, for example, we're looking at technologies that could heat up the oil using electric radio waves, so no water. We're looking at adding a solvent so that we can use less steam, which would lessen our energy use and our water use. And there are a few other technologies that we're looking at as well.
0: One of the largest challenges with in situ technologies is the sheer intensity of water and electricity used to produce the steam required for the operations. Here, Kelly describes the cogeneration plant that Suncor uses to offset some of this electricity usage themselves.
5: So people ask where the steam comes from, and one of the answers to that question at both MacKay River and Firebag is through the use of a cogeneration plant that creates the electricity that we need to make the steam. What's neat about it is that we can sell the excess electricity, which is essentially coming from natural gas-fired plant we can sell that to the power grid. So at both Mackay River and Firebag, we need far less electricity than the co-generation units actually create. So we actually sell quite a lot of power back to the electricity grid in Alberta, which means that we're displacing some of the coal-fired electricity with natural gas-fired electricity.
0: After touring the in-situ facility, Jenny and Julia returned home. In talking to them about the trip, They were both blown away at the size, scope, and scale of the entire operations. From the machinery to the infrastructure required, nothing is done small in Fort McMurray. I encourage anyone that is interested to take the time to make a trip up to Fort McMurray and see the oil sands operations with their own eyes. It is something that is shaping not only Canadian, but global geopolitics around oil, and is something that is a contentious topic in Canada and around the world. We encourage everyone to become more educated on these sorts of topics and to develop some first-hand knowledge and first-hand perspectives on what the realities and challenges of these operations truly are. We wanted to thank Suncor Energy for giving us this opportunity to have an open and honest look at the oil sands. In the very first episode of Energy Voices, we ran a fun segment called Energy Hacks that focused on ways that you can reduce your personal energy consumption in the wintertime. With summer upon us, we wanted to revisit this task and give you some marching orders on how you can reduce your energy consumption in the summertime. It's estimated that the average North American household contributes around 17 tons of CO2 to the atmosphere every year. Of each of our CO2 emissions, One third of that comes from electricity generation, and I know what you're thinking. That sounds super random. I have no idea what 17 tons of CO2 looks like, but who cares? Today on the show, we're going to give you the fun and simple ways that you can hack your energy consumption to shame your neighbors, attract suitable mates by proving your eco and fiscal intelligence, and best of all, save some money. So without further ado, here are summertime energy hacks. The first energy hack hack relates to your ceiling fan. Most people don't know this, but you can run your ceiling fan forward and backwards. For the cooling effect during summer, your fan should run forward in direction which is counterclockwise. This will force the room air down, giving you the wind chill effect, which makes you feel cooler. We often think that the wind chill effect is just a negative thing in the wintertime, but you can use it to your advantage to change the perceived temperature in the air by just changing the direction of your fan. When it comes to air conditioners, you can actually improve the efficiency of your air conditioner by up to 15% by just changing the air filter. And speaking of air conditioners, oftentimes one of the biggest reasons that air conditioners work and make us feel cooler is because of their ability to strip humidity from the air. We have the wind chill effect and we also have the humidity index, which are both examples of how the perceived cooling or heating based on humidity and the wind chill effect can affect our perceived temperatures. So one of the really interesting ways that you can get around this in the summertime is to try to dehumidify your home. We often don't think about the moisture that's in the air, but that can trap a lot of heat and make us feel like it's warmer than it actually is. If you're looking for a fun and wacky do-it-yourself project, consider making your own at-home rock salt dehumidifier that will actually strip water out of the ambient air and make you feel cooler. There are also a number of simple energy hacks that you can use to reduce your energy consumption. Some of the most simple ones include using your blinds to your advantage. When you leave for work in the morning, make sure your blinds are shutted or shuttered so that no passive solar is heating your home during the day. And when you get home, make sure to lift your blinds and open windows in the front and the back of the house. Opening one window is ineffective because there's nowhere for that airflow to go, so make sure to open at least two windows ideally on opposite sides of your house, so you can create your own mini weather patterns and again, take advantage of the wind chill effect of the wind speed traveling over your body. In the summertime, we all hate using the oven and make sure to commit to owning and using a barbecue or some sort of outdoor cooking device so that you can avoid unnecessarily heating your home to then cool it with an air conditioner or with a fan. We've also coined the term solar dryer, which is really just the fact that there's no need in the summertime for you to be using a dryer. Hang dry your clothes on a line outside and take advantage of the fact that the sun will dry your clothes without releasing any waste exhaust heat into your home. If you're looking for the most efficient way to cook, the microwave is your best friend. The microwave is the most energy efficient means of cooking food as it releases no waste heat and doesn't require a significant period of time to heat up. Switching gears, there's also a number of projects you can do to reduce your energy consumption in the summer without focusing on food. One of the easiest ways you can improve the envelope of your home is to buy some caulking and to go around your home on the exterior and in the attic and to fill any cracks or holes that you come across. The envelope of your home is how contained it is, as in the wintertime, a solid envelope will keep heat in, and in the summertime, it will keep heat out. In a similar thread, if you're also looking to improve the efficiency of your home, you should really consider re-insulating your home, or in older homes, insulating in the attic for the first time. This has the ability to save up to $300 in many homes because of the increase in the overall insulation of that home. The next energy hack is light bulbs we've all heard it before we need to use smarter light bulbs and it's something that on the surface everyone seems to be in agreement with but for some reason we still sell traditional inefficient light bulbs this is the biggest slam dunk opportunity that exists in the world of energy efficiency where you immediately drastically reduce your electricity consumption per light bulb, and over the lifetime of that light bulb, have a significant cost savings and make money by transitioning. It does not make sense for you to not go out this weekend and transition all of your light bulbs towards CFLs or LEDs. And the last energy hack we have is around the concept of phantom energy. You might hear that term and be a little curious as to what phantom energy is and it's something that's not often talked about in the world of energy. All around your home, you have devices and appliances that are constantly plugged in, and they suck what is called phantom energy. Often to just keep the little LED display clock on the coffee maker or to have the on light on the Xbox working, it actually requires a small amount of electricity. So even in the time you've been listening to this radio show, you're losing one penny at a time from all of this phantom energy that is just waiting for you to turn that device on. Be intelligent and go around your home once every six months and unplug any appliances you have plugged in. As soon as you need to use them again, plug them in. Try to remember to unplug them when they're not in use, but at least if you make the rounds, you'll make sure that any of those appliances that you're not using on a day-to-day basis aren't costing you phantom energy. That brings us to a close on energy hacks for summer. Energy hacks is themed primarily around energy efficiency and is a subject that is talked about often, but very few people truly understand the importance. When you save an electron of energy by turning off unnecessary appliances, switching to compact fluorescent light bulbs, or subscribing to any of the previous energy hacks we had described, you're not just saving that one electron of electricity. There are many estimates that for every one unit of energy we save in the home, that that saves three units of energy in the ground. If you think about the fact that we often dig up coal, combust it in massive power plants, and transmit that over sometimes hundreds of kilometers, there are huge combustion, conversion, and efficiency losses. So to get that one unit of electricity in our home, we've actually had to create three units of electricity in a power plant. That should be a motivating factor for you because when you reduce even one kilowatt of power, you're actually helping reduce three kilowatts of power from the electricity grid. We hope you've enjoyed Energy Hacks, and if you have any suggestions of your own, please use hashtag energyvoices to share them with our audience. Up next on Energy Voices is an essay by Julian Mathonier, one of Student Energy's youth volunteers.
6: Hardly one hour into the European Student Energy Summit 2014, held in Aberdeen, the North Sea Talk speakers were addressed with a blunt, if only slightly provocative, question. Is the North Sea a dead case? Oddly enough, the question was submitted on Twitter by an anonymous delegate, suddenly blowing into smithereens the preceding and somewhat unconvincing demonstration that, for all the upcoming challenges, North Sea still had a promising future. The moment was ripe for enlightenment. On the one side stood the specialist, oozing self-confidence and smothering the audience with the avancular flannel of their long-acquired expertise, on the other side sat the delegates, most of their millennials, quietly tweeting away their thoughts about the nonsense of spending so much money to extend the life of a declining petroleum province when so much remains to be done on the sustainability side. And the thought darted through my mind that maybe the way we understand energy sustainability and universal access to electricity was a perceptual problem between generations. Not that I am keen on delving into the generational divide, but the discrepancies in the level of concern struck me as particularly odd. For the young energy leaders of today, the world is one of technological innovation. We are witnesses to radical behavioural changes. The Generation Y was born with digital technologies. They are connected all the time, exchange instant messages from every single corner of the world and indifferently navigate both the tangible and the virtual universes. Increasingly, we make our way into the world by means of a kinetic disposition that the Germans called Fingerspitzengefühl, literally fingertip sensitivity. Look at the adroitness with which we use our fingers on our mobile touch screen devices. This may sound trivial, but we are developing a new relationship to the world, and this relationship extends beyond the realm of proximity, of the local here and there, of the narrow boundaries of our communities. I often think of this new humanity as Michelangelo's image of the near touching hands of God and Adam in the Sistine Chapel, Creation is indeed at our fingertips. We're in a position to decide this is the time to make crucial choices and to commit to a sustainable energy future. And while technology is increasing our global reach, it is also shaping the geography of our imagination in new directions. The future of the North Sea, or any other declining petroleum province for that matter, is important, but the message from the delegates was clear. Fixing old problems is not enough. We must take a leap of faith and embrace radically new ideas. We must look beyond the current problems. Senior energy leaders may be full of guile, but they've been lacking in pluck. Addressing the supply side to avoid more complex issues and handing out cheap supplies to enable our societies to indulge their snug consumption preferences. But powering the future is not about future power. It is about how we want to shape tomorrow's world out of our energy choices and the fact that sustainability has to fit in a broader, not exclusively resource-oriented picture. 14 years into the 21st century, nearly one-fifth of the world has no access to electricity, condemned to lightless rest when night falls. Powering the future is about bringing the enormous benefits of electricity to those countries left on the fringes. Universal access to energy will in turn power their own development, their capacity to harness new business, connect to the rest of the world and rise from poverty through increased productivity and efficiency. However, the way we think about sustainability has far too long been shrouded in conflicting and highly uncertain forecasts about energy reserves and the cost of developing and extracting them. And as Professor Peter O'Dell, a leading energy scholar, once put it, realism over the critical issues of potential energy resources in the 21st century has become a very scarce commodity. A number of energy experts continue to think that we should be concerned with energy security. Of course we should. We don't want to cut developing countries' way to prosperity. But the point of sustainable energy is now proven. The risk of climate change has crystallized. The comprehensive switch to alternative energy sources is necessary. And the previous generation's focus on energy supplies distracts from an emerging consensus on the need to address sustainability from broader perspectives. The oil and gas industry showers us with concerns for the environment, but they can't keep their eyes off the ring count, or anything resembling a quantitative resource assessment. And they fumble for whatever elixir of fancy their forecasting figures may possess, like Roman generals reading omens before the battle, though maybe more opportunist, as befits industry captains. Enhanced oil recovery, carbon capture and storage, marginal field development are all fascinating technologies, but they merely target an already diseased and condemned resource. They are itching to lure the business back to declining regions, but they will doubtfully stable the impeding resource scarcity of a growing demand for cleaner sources of energy. And what about the demand side? Delegates of the ESES 2014 have been adamant about it. Efficiency improvement, demand side management, electromobility, increased social awareness, better insulation, urban farming and planning, harnessing the power of the sun to fuel our pursuits... During an innovation jam session held at the European Conference, our participants came with a host of interesting ideas, some of them practical and immediately applicable, most of them entailing modest levels of investment. If we cannot imagine a world disenfranchised from motor transportation, we can surely think about different modes of transportation sharing, as well as alternative ways of fueling them. Individual transportation, after all, is an ill wind that has blown nobody good, endless commuting times, metastasizing suburban dwellings, and city centers where pedestrians are increasingly unwelcome. We often sit in our powerful cars thinking of how convenient they are to access all those remote places, hardly conscious of the incredible paradox that by increasing global proximity through transportation, we have gradually destroyed the benefits of local proximity. When we could walk, we now use our cars because the environment we have created is no longer conducive to enjoyable walking or cycling. That's what we have given up for the delusive pleasure of driving, now wasting idle time at traffic lights that we would certainly enjoy spending elsewhere. Yet, I believe in the capacity of young energy leaders to change course. I believe in their ability to challenge common wisdom and show that true belief and dogged commitment can infect a resistant energy industry. Like my anonymous delegate's proverbial questions about the North Sea, information and technology now spread too fast to enable energy pundits to cling to their old beliefs. And change will come from our increasing ability to criticize the choices that are all too often being made for us. Change will come from a better understanding and knowledge of energy issues, from better energy literacy, and from the willingness and capacity to bring it to the people around us.
0: Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Energy Voices. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Mark Affeld with contributions from Julia Kavuma, Jennifer Matchett, and Julian Mathonier. You can download previous episodes of Energy Voices by visiting bit.ly energyvoices or by looking on the front page of cjsw.com.